Yesterday evening, Catherine introduced the theme of space, and this evening I'd actually like to continue with that same theme. I'll call it spaciousness, take two. I'd like to begin by reading to you something from the Bhagavad Gita. It says, it teaches us that even as the wonder of the stars in the heavens only reveals itself in the silence of the night, so too the wonder of life reveals itself in the silence of the heart. In the silence of our hearts, we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe bound by love. I could just change the words slightly a little poetic license. Teach us that even as the wonder of the stars only reveals itself in the vastness of the sky, so too the wonder of this life reveals itself only in the spaciousness of our hearts. In the spaciousness of our heart, we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe connected and liberated by understanding. Now, as you've probably gathered, we tend to value spaciousness a great deal. And I find myself speaking about spaciousness more and more in retreats. And the way in which we begin to understand that it's really spaciousness that allows this rising and passing of the rhythms of life to occur according to its own nature, to be seen without being held. I think sometimes you begin to taste a little bit of spaciousness on retreat or in your life, and you really get a taste of the calm of spaciousness, this kind of unruffled, easeful nature. But it's also an art, you know, and again, we often tend to think when we hear these qualities like spaciousness or calm or peace, we tend to make them into nouns, into destinations, into experiences, rather than an actual way of living, an art, in a way, the kind of primary art, I would say, of meditative practice. How do we learn to surround all things with spaciousness? Not to see spaciousness as an empty, blank space, but actually the spaciousness that we bring to life, in which nothing has to go away, nothing has to appear, Nothing is demanded that it be different than it is. But spaciousness, it is that quality of seeing, I think, that also allows for depth because it allows us to see beneath the surface of our concepts, our worries, our arguments, our struggles. In a way, learning how to, the art of spaciousness is learning, learning how to lay down that argumentative state. Now, I know we, we can often feel very, very strongly attracted to the, the concept 
and to the possibility of spaciousness. We would probably all love to feel more spacious. But at the same time, there can be a sense of puzzlement around the word. You know, I was talking about this with my daughter earlier today. She says, what do you mean by spaciousness? So I gave her this talk. Um, (laughs) But we can tend to be rather puzzled by the word. You know, what does it mean? What does it look like? And even more importantly, how do we get it? How do we get there? And first, just briefly, without dwelling too much upon it, it's very important to mention there's a very distinct difference between spaciousness and spaciness. You know, that spaciousness is not this kind of unfocused, shapeless, sort of drifting around in a dull fog of distractedness. Because I think spaciness we can just really know too well. And it's not, it's not spacious. In a, way, in a way, spaciness is a really unpleasant feeling. Once we start to get in touch with it, it's this unpleasant feeling of kind of like being governed and pushed around by whatever thought or mental state or image or event is predominant in that moment. That sense of just drifting, almost feeling... Well, actually feeling lost, disconnected, confused. Also, I think it's very important to mention that spaciousness is not an experience to be strived for or to be gained. It's really all about changing the lens of how we see. It's just about changing the lens of how we see the moment and everything in it. How It's changing the lens of how through which we attend to life, to how we are present in our all the changing moments of our minds and our hearts and our lives. One, I think, or a couple of the characteristics of spaciousness is, is, is a sense of, of balance, of poise, of equanimity. And simplicity. The sense of no longer just being swept away, pulled and pushed by the inner and the outer events of our life. And the implication of that is that when we are not in this place of being overwhelmed or swept away by the events of our life or our mind, there is a freedom there to respond, to offer whatever those events need. I think to understand spaciousness, and some of this will go over territory that Catherine covered last night, to understand spaciousness, we also have to understand how we create events and what the nature of contractedness actually is. Now, spaciousness is often, I think, not born of what we attain or gain, but I think is actually much more born of what we allow to fall away. 
what we allow to fall away. I want to read you a little story that kind of illustrates this. actually kind of a long story. The poor man had come to the end of his rope, so he went to the rabbi for advice. Holy rabbi, he cried, things are in a bad way with me and getting worse all the time. We're poor, so poor that my wife, my six children, my in-laws and I live in a one-room hut. Our nerves are frayed, and because we have plenty of troubles, we quarrel. Believe me, my home is a hell, and I'd sooner die than live this way. The rabbi pondered the matter gravely. My son, he said, promise to do as I say, and your condition will improve. I promise, rabbi, answered the troubled man, do anything. Tell me, what animals do you own? I have a cow, a goat, and some chickens. Very well. Go home and take all these animals into your house to live with you. The poor man was dumbfounded, but since he'd promised the rabbi, he went home and brought all the animals into his house. Following day, he returned to the rabbi and cried, Rabbi, what a misfortune you brought upon me. I did as you said. I brought the animals into the house, and now what have I got? Things are worse than ever. My life is a perfect hell. The house has turned into a barn. Save me, rabbi. My son replied the rabbi serenely, Go home and take the chickens out of your house. God will help you. So he went home and took the chickens out of his house. But it wasn't long before he again came running to the rabbi. Help me, save me. The goat is smashing everything in the house. She's turned my life into a nightmare. Go home, said the rabbi gently. Take the goat out of your house. God will help you. So the poor man did just this, but again it wasn't long before he came running to the rabbi lamenting. Rabbi, the cow has turned the house into a stable. How can you expect a human being to live like this? You're right, a hundred times right, agreed the rabbi. Go home and take the cow out of your house. And the poor unfortunate hastened home and took the cow out of his house. Not a day had passed before he again came running to the rabbi. Rabbi, cried the poor man, his face beaming. You've made life sweet again for me. With all the animals out, the house is so quiet, so roomy, and so clean. What a pleasure. So we might think, what are we going to take out of our house to allow for spaciousness to be there? I think it's a good question. What do we take out of our house for spaciousness to be there? Sometimes we can imagine that we can do this path and, and everything in our life should just stay the same. But actually, you know, this path is you know, mentioned right in the beginning of the retreat, that this path is a path. It's not just about a practice. And as a path, it does invite a, a reflection upon the whole of our lives. And sometimes it's a little surprising, isn't it, when we may come to retreats like this poor man lamenting loudly about, you know, how our our life is a chaos. And we say, well, how do you live? Oh, well, you know, I just don't have enough time in the day. I do this, you know, I'm working, I'm partying, I'm, you know, I have this and this and, you you know, I never turn anything off. Well, actually, what do we take out of our house? How do we begin even externally, in the very nature of our lives, begin to create a little bit more spaciousness. 
But I want to give you a few examples that maybe you can relate to in terms of using the external to understand the internal. When you walk into a room like this or any room, you notice how easily our attention is drawn to all the things in the room, the Buddha statues, the cushions, the curtains, the whatever, all the things that are in the room. And that when you notice when your attention is drawn to all the things in the room, how quickly that perception tunes into this world of preferences, of likes and dislikes, of arguments, of being for and against, about the things. Now if we just make like a slight adjustment, and like even now, just look at the space in the room, the space that surrounds and allows all of the things to be here. And of course, the space in this space in this room is not confined by the walls. It goes on beyond the walls without boundaries. Sometimes we suggest in the practice that we take our attention to listening, to hearing. And have you noticed when you hear that suggestion how quickly the mind goes to look for a sound? It is like there's got to be something to listen to. And we can even feel like it doesn't even make any sense to listen without a sound to listen to. But maybe it does. Have you noticed here that there's a, because, you know, this is a place of really quite some quietude, that sometimes we listen only to silence. And have you noticed in that how the silence makes room, makes a space for the sounds to arise, and they pass back into the silence. And the silence doesn't have any arguments with the sounds, does it? Oh, I want that, you know, silence is not there in this, this commentary saying, you know, I only want that sound, not the other sound. And we give encouragement in the practice to be mindful of breathing, there's the in-breath, there's the out-breath, there's the pause between breaths. And, you know, we can, people tie themselves knots around this breathing stuff, you know, like, is that the right way to breathe? You know, is that a big enough breath or that breath's too shallow, you know, or, you know, get very creative because it's not very interesting, you know, I'll breathe in the right nostril, out the left nostril, you know, you get this whole thing about being the perfect breather and how many breaths in a row, We could also learn to rest in the pause between breaths and to let the breath breathe itself. Chogun Trungpa, a Tibetan lama who's now died, he was once teaching a retreat and he brought into the meditation room a very, very, and held up a very, very large piece of light blue paper. And he invited everybody to kind of associate around what this paper was uh, or what it suggested to them. And, you know, most people or many people said, you know, that the the paper was the sky. You know, that was what it suggested to them. And then Trunka drew an inverted notch on the paper, an inverted V like this, And again, he invited everybody to associate around that and say, you know, what do you think that is? You know, what do you think it is? And many people says, oh, that's a bird. 
And he said, no, it's the sky with a bird in it. There's a big difference here in how we change the lens. And let's reflect just a few minutes just on the nature of your own mind and heart as you've experienced yourself over these days. And isn't it true that it often feels very full? That it often feels like this kind of waterfall, this tsunami of memories, images, preferences, thoughts. And even when the mind calms down, you notice how there's often this kind of running commentary that says, oh, now my mind is calming down. You know? And it often just has that feeling of just so full. Now, how do you know that? What allows you to know that? What allows you to know anything? What allows you to see anything? Well, it is our, the capacity for awareness, for seeing, for, know, for knowing. Now, you probably have experienced over these days the, how easy it is to be drawn into the contents of the mind. And that when we are drawn into the contents of the mind, how easy it is to begin to build constructions, to proliferate, to build solidity, to build opinions, to build views, to build a sense of identity, to build identities for people we've never met in our entire life. We have no idea who they are, but we're sure we don't do know everything about them. The tendency to construct, Now, what is it like, and I wonder if you've tasted that at all, just what it's like to step back from that busyness and to rest in the seeing, to rest in the knowing, which actually has no preferences. Just as the space in the room doesn't have any preferences for a green cushion over a blue cushion. When we rest in the seeing, the thoughts, the ideas, the memories, they arise and they fall away. They have no independent self-existence. Thoughts and images arise and, and pass away, appear and disappear in the seeing, and this is what we call inner spaciousness. The ease, the stillness, of not holding anywhere, and yet the expansiveness, the inclusiveness. Now, spaciousness, I would say, on one hand, is cultivated, but it's also born of understanding its opposite contractedness. And what I would say is that spaciousness is a cultivation of immediacy. You don't have to be an expert You don't need to have a lot of time. It's about remembering moment to moment that we can shift from being lost and bound to particulars and the contents to resting in the spaciousness around the particulars and contents. And we can do this in any moment, in any moment. 
If I give you an example, you might come into a sit, and say this is just an example, and and a thought arises about an argument that you, or a disagreement that you've had with somebody, and you can feel as the thought arises. How it arises together and starts to get charged with feeling, with memory, with anxiety, with history. And you can see the inclination to start to feel imprisoned, almost like the thought has you. And the story is telling you. It's not like you're not, you're not even telling the story anymore. The story is telling you. And this is not intentional. I think most of us would rather not feel that way. We would rather not feel imprisoned. We would rather not feel contracted. But it's a habit. It's a habit. It's a habit. The habit of constructing, the habit of associating, the habit of building worlds. Now, you notice that when you get lost in the contents and the building, there's a lot of things that start to disappear. In fact, much of the present moment really starts to disappear. If you notice, like if you're in the midst of some great obsession, you know, how, you know, that body that was so painful a few minutes ago, it's like you hardly even notice it. You know, it's, it's hardly even there. You're hardly even aware of having a body. It's like you've transcended the body. You know, sound, you know, you notice how the sounds of the birds have disappeared? You know, when you're lost in the obsession, the birds are still singing away, but there's no awareness of hearing them. They're fading and disappearing. Now, suppose we could remember and and be alert enough to that sense of, of contracting, obsessing. Suppose we were alert enough to know that and that we could remember and begin to reclaim everything that has faded away begin to reclaim the sense of the body, begin to reclaim the listening. So what are we doing there? We're moving into an intentional relationship, an intentional relatedness, rather than an impulsive or or unintentional sense of being lost. Now the difficult thought, the memory of the argument then, does not just disappear but it is arising in the landscape of the whole of the moment rather than consuming the moment. That's the difference. Arising in the landscape of the whole of the moment rather than the difficult thought consuming the whole of the moment. Now notice if we're sitting, you know, we're fairly calm and, and a sound arises. You know, it's, it's a, a quite pleasant sound of a bird. Now, we contract not around just the unpleasant, but also the pleasant. Spaciousness is also lost in relationship to the pleasant. So as you hear this lovely sound, and if you, you know, you kind of like the breath, it's a little boring, you know, so you're, you're a little interested in this sound. Ah, 
bird, you know. And you can feel, again, even the mind start to do that, you know. Next time I'm going to bring my binoculars, I wonder what kind of bird it is, I'll bring my bird book, you know. Or it could be, you know, the garbage truck, it's an unpleasant sound. Exactly the same thing happens, you know. Who's allowed that on this site, you know, who's interrupting my sitting, I was on the precipice of an enlightenment, and here comes a garbage <laughs> truck, you know. And you notice how this is what we mean by the 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 loss of spaciousness. This is what we mean by contractedness. What and that is what we are experiencing in that moment is contractedness. And I think Catherine, this tightening, narrowing of awareness, the shrinking of vision, the sacrifice of spaciousness. Now, it's very important, I feel, to get a feel for the contracted heart, to get a feel for the contracted mind, to really start to know that landscape, to know what it feels like, so you can begin to be alert to its beginnings to when that shrinking starts to happen. And it is a very felt sense in the body and in the mind, plus, of course, it is this very selective focusing in the present moment. Sometimes contractedness is kind of entertaining, briefly. You know, if we're contracted around some neat fantasy or a daydream, you know, romantic, you know plan, you know, it can be briefly entertaining, admit that. But after a while, if you really get a sense for it, you actually really actually begin to see that it's mostly suffering. But it's also just as important to get a felt sense of spaciousness. To really get a felt sense of what it feels like to be spacious, to be resting and intimate with that sense of allowing, of ease, of inclusiveness and receptivity. It's also, I think, really important not to create these dualisms in the mind because I sometimes see people, you know, they're like pursuing spaciousness and believing that this sort of spaciousness of heart rests upon annihilating thought or events or experience, you know, and that's like trying to annihilate life. And, you know, too many people in practice are just anti-thought, you know, like they think we'd be a great meditator if I didn't think anymore. But I've never, you know, I think what we really teach here is really quite an intelligent mindfulness it's really kind of an intelligent practice, you know, where, you know, I'm certainly not interested in teaching anybody not to think. I'd rather much more teach people how to think well. Perhaps we can start, though, to develop the habit of spaciousness rather than the habit of contractedness. Now, we see that contractedness is a habit, and that's actually where we learn to cultivate the art of spaciousness. We could say that contractedness itself is the doorway of spaciousness. Now, it's very important to take any form of judgment away from the habit of contractedness you know because there's really no blame in getting caught in the dramas and the fabrications and the thoughts 
But it's important to recognize that we can wake up from that habit. And it's a little bit like waking up from a dream. Sometimes, after a long time, we wake up. But it doesn't matter. It's about knowing about how to come back to that place, that way of being, which is spacious. And waking up for most of us really does involve recognizing that that the very hub, the very heart of contractedness is clinging and that to cling is to instantly increase the amount of torment in our lives. Now, to know that deeply, to know that deeply, you know, we, we, I think we have to sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, not be ambivalent about clinging. You know, because I think sometimes there is a sort of ambivalence, you know, because sometimes we really enjoy clinging. You know, we really, and, you know, we really have a sense of it's very important to cling to identity and to cling to me and to cling to views. But I think the Buddha was really very unconditional about this. It is to cling is to suffer. To cling is to suffer. And to be able to let go of clinging is instantly to increase the amount of spaciousness in our lives. I'll give you an example of this. You know, last year, in where at my house where I've lived for a long tree, a long time, I had the very beautiful silver birch tree on my front lawn. It was huge, like you know, like really, really tall, and I've watched it grow over 25 years. And, you know, suddenly I was told that my tree had to be, my tree, you notice the words, my tree. (laughs) My tree had to be cut down because its roots were breaking up all the pipes, the water pipes and sewage pipes. And when I was told this, I had this immediate aversion attack. You know, I mean, it wasn't even, I wouldn't even call it an aversion attack. It was just like, no. It's not going to happen. You know, it's absolutely not going to happen. And it was kind of like, you know, it's like, although this was kind of an inner process, it was like stamping my feet, you know, and say, no way. Now, fortunately, I would say as a result, probably of a lot of practice, it didn't last too long. And I could see, you know, that, that in some ways, you know, like that it was this movement into the sense of contractedness. Now, it didn't make it any less sad that the tree had to be cut down, but really, it was pretty wrong view to believe that this tree, this tree should be exempt from impermanence, that it was mine, you know, that it was the gatekeeper of my happiness. So, fortunately, it didn't last very long. And it was just interesting seeing that shift from wrong view into wise view. To say, oh, yeah, It'd be sad to see this tree go. It'll allow room for something else to grow. Of course it would be still sad. But what is happening inwardly that I allow that I could allow my sense of well being or happiness to be hostage to a tree? Or anything. Or anything. And how many times in our life we're making, you know, because when we're caught in unwise view, which is all the demands and insistence we have that, you know, you should be like this, that I'm like this, that this should stay the same, nothing should change. You know, every time we're caught in unwise view, 
We are caught in contractedness and we're caught in suffering. And how many times in our life do we find ourselves just making that step out of unwise view, what the Buddha called wrong view, into wise view? Which is actually really nothing very complicated, really. It's about aligning ourselves with the way things actually are. It's about aligning ourselves with non-self. It's about aligning ourselves with the nature of change. It's about aligning ourselves with non-clinging. Now, one way of seeing our life is, is like, it's, it's like a flow. Our life is like a river of causes and conditions. Many of them began long before we were born and will continue long after our death. And in truth, our life, our life, is simply an event born of countless other events, beginning with our birth, ending with our death. Now this event of our life is precious, as all lives are precious. We tend to mark our life and our happiness, and our sorrow by the vast number of events that are held within this framework of what we call our life. And very universal, isn't it? Gain, loss, loneliness, intimacy, achievement, failure, pleasure, pain, illness, health, moments of excitement, moments of fear, the things we do, and the things that we choose not to do. Our minds are often full of all of the events that have passed and the events that are yet to come. Or our minds are often full of the events that we are preoccupied with in the present. If you look at your mind now, if you look at how your mind was in the last sitting, it's almost like... In truth, there's a limitless ground and fuel for preoccupation. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a saying that preoccupations do not end until the moment that we die, but they end when we put them down. That's their nature. We could say that obsessions do not end until we, the moment that we die, but they, put, they end when we put them down. That is their nature. Now, in wise view, in wise understanding, within this river of events we call our life, there is also limitless ground for spaciousness. Now, what is an event? You know, you think about today, so many events, you know, breakfast, lunch, sitting, walking, work period, you know, the event of a crisis in the mind, you know, the event of a certain meditation experience, the event within a certain, you know, a walking. What is it that makes something an an event? Well, what we see in life is that The causes and conditions, inwardly and outwardly, are always kind of shifting, aren't they? Coming together, combining together in certain ways, and then again breaking apart, coming together in other ways. It's kind of like a weather system, isn't it? You get certain conditions come together, you know, when we have a clear, starry night, other conditions come together and it will rain. Different, And then those conditions will change again into something else. 
It's pretty impersonal, the weather system, isn't it? I mean, we're actually not in control. You know, nobody was able to get up this morning and said, you know, oh, I think we'll have a, you know, ba- baking summer's day today, you know, and we'll all hang out sunbathing. I mean, it's pretty impersonal. We're not in control of much of that. We can see that in the world around us. But actually, sometimes we don't see it because sometimes we make a lot of effort to try and control the uncontrollable to try to grasp the ungraspable, to try to make things stand still when their nature is to move and to flow. Just because we are not in control, and this is true inwardly, I mean, did anybody get up this morning and decide it was a good day to be depressed, you know? Great day to be anxious, you know? Great day to be lost in contractedness, you know? Or anybody get up this morning and think, oh, I think I'll be enlightened today, you know, this is it, you know? I mean, it's actually, you know, it's like, duh, you know, it's not what's happening. But to say we are not in control does not mean being out of control. There is a rhythm how one thing arises from another leading to another. And we are certainly not out of control in the sense that none of us are helpless. We are not helpless. Because into this mixture of conditions that is all of our lives, and if we can accept that, there is actually a lot of spaciousness in not trying to be in control. You know, that's a big one to move out of your house. That's a really huge one to take out, to allow, to be, the desire, the need to be in control. You take that out of your house, already there's a whole lot more space. We are not helpless. We are not helpless because into this mixture of conditions, we are bringing all manner of other conditions. We're bringing the conditions of mindfulness. We're bringing the conditions of, of intentionality. We bring the conditions of energy, of confidence, of trust, of motivation. And that shapes whether our world is a contracted world or a spacious world. Now, I want to look just a little bit more specifically at our own relationship to events and how we react to them. Now, I know it is terribly embarrassing to say, but most of the time we do see ourselves as being the center of the universe. You know, everybody should, you know, we can just be upfront about that. You know, we think, you know, who do you think about most? You know, I mean, really. I mean, you know, I mean, what are most of you... I mean, what most of your stories revolve around, you know, we're starring in our own dramas all the time, aren't we? We're, you know, it's kind of like most of the time we think the universe revolves around me. Um, I make things happen or things happen to me. And it's hard to imagine a life where we're not the center of the universe. And it's hard to imagine a life that is not kind of e- calibrated by events, marked by events. Because then we think, who would we be? What would get us out of bed in the morning? You know, maybe we would be nobody. But we can also start to see that every time we have a sense of who we are, this is also an event arising in relationship to other events. Isn't that neat? You know, uh, the event of pain arises, I'm the sufferer. You know, a thought arises, the event of a story, and I'm the star. 
you know, we can see that, you know, a, a plan arises and I'm the planner. So, like, I, this whole process of selfing is an event bound together with other events. Now, how sticky does that relationship really have to be? How sticky does it have to be? Because I am an event bound to other events only as long as there is clinging to events. Is that clear? I am an event shaped and formed by clinging to other events. So, and events are made by isolating certain configurations of conditions. And often in that, we forget about impermanence and we forget about spaciousness. And if you give you an example about this on retreat, you know, like, what is a big event on retreat? Lunch, for many people. Lunch is, is the big event of the day. You know, so, you know, it's uh, the event in the mind often starts with the lunch bell. You know, oh, lunch, you know, you're standing in line. You know, you're hungry, and, you know, it's nice to have something different happening other than breathing. So, I mean, so eating sounds good for a while, you know. So you're standing in line, you know, you're very happy about this, and something is served that you don't like. Well... You can feel the response of unhappiness start, you know, and the unhappy self being born, the unhappy self creating time, you know, past, present, and future. We can find ourselves just in that event of the lunch we don't like, leaning back into the past, you know, all the times, all the unhappy lunches we've ever had, you know, (laughs) all the times we've been unhappy in our entire life, you know. We find ourselves leaning back in that clinging into the future, you know, all the unhappy future lunches we're going to have to endure, (laughs) all the unhappy necks. Now, does that all have to happen? Or can we just rest? Can we just begin to rest? Can we step out of that event-making and into eventlessness? Notice how easy it is to do this. I mean, I mean, have you ever found yourself, and, you know, and again, this is an embarrassing thing to imagine, but um, have you ever found yourself in the middle of a sitting or walking looking at your watch? You know, like, some of you nodding. <laughs> well, if you're not looking at your watch, waiting for the bell to ring. You know, just waiting for the bell to ring, wondering whether we've all fallen asleep up here. You know, but can you imagine that we think, what comes, you know, what, what's that all about? So we have another 10 minutes to breathe, and then the bell gets goes, and we're going to have, act, What? More moments, actually, to breathe in, right? What do we think the next is? What do we think the next is? And how then we start to create an event in the, in the midst of that, the better or the worse next. The better or the worse next. There's a wonderful Zen saying, you know, this is it. There is no next. This is it. We can keep coming back, I think, in our lives and our practice, a sense of just this, just this, 
Conditions will change. There will be new configurations. The river will keep flowing. But we will still be breathing, still be walking, still be sitting, still be uh, standing, still be thinking, still be feeling. Can we connect with the spaciousness that holds all of that and just rest? I think of mindfulness in its deepest sense as eventlessness. I think of awareness in its deepest sense as a kind of eventlessness that amidst all of the changing conditions in our lives, nothing is being isolated, nothing is being seized upon, no hierarchies are being made, no better, no worse, nothing is being taken out of the flow of conditions and made to be mine or belonging to me. And that is actually resting in eventlessness. Now, learning, certainly learning to attend is the forerunner of spaciousness. Learning to be present, to begin to brighten our minds, to begin to cultivate and gather a sense of stillness. And in that, begin to see how our world of this moment is born by seizing upon certain configurations of conditions and clinging, saying, as I am, is who you are, this is what is. It's as if we are trying to stop a river. It's as if we're trying to stop a river from moving. Now when we begin to expand our view, what we see in spaciousness are the Four Noble Truths. The suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the pathway to the end of suffering. We begin to see that we can soften, soften the clinging and begin to reconnect moment to moment with that quality of spaciousness that is really available and present in every moment. I just want to end with something from Ajahn Chah. He says, Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. The world will come and go in that stillness. This is the happiness of a Buddha. We have just a moment quietly together. <coughs>